Well, it's been really good to worship together today. Thank you for leading us in worship, Blair, and Twyla and Janet. Um, I want to start this morning by asking a question. Uh, who among us wants to be great? Honestly. It's human nature to want to be the greatest, the greatest this or the greatest that. Uh, and we can see this in all different kinds of ways. Uh, you can see it in your professional life. There is this corporate ladder or climbing the ladder. There's even a phrase for it. We want to climb up. We want to put ourselves over others, whether that's in the position of manager or supervisor or founder, owner. It's difficult not to aspire to be the greatest in the workplace. And when you're not the greatest, when you're not the top of the heap or the top of the ladder, having to submit to those who are over you is not always that easy. Uh, it's human nature to want to be the president, whether it's the president of your local 4-H club. I don't know if they still do 4-H, but yeah, they do. Thank you for that. So whether you want to be the president of 4-H, or you want to be president of the United States or Optimist Club or whatever, it's natural to want to be the president of something, to make business cards that has your name on it and underneath it says president, comma, then whatever organization it is. It's natural that we would aspire in athletics to the gold medal, to win a perishable crown, to be the tournament champion, to be the MVP. It's natural to want to be a social media sensation, to have that video that gets more likes than any other video, a video that might get you a trip to L.A. to get on the stage with Ellen DeGeneres. It's natural to want to have more friends than anyone else. It's, it's natural to want to take your life, put it on a screen for people to see, and for other people to be envious of that, or to like it, to visit your website or your blog. It is natural to want to be famous for whatever reason. And in our generation, I mean, this has probably always been true, but it's been especially true in our generation that we can even be famous for fame's sake. What are you famous for? I'm famous for being famous. And, and so we want to be the greatest even in fame. And that can come in all kinds of ways. Uh, for example, uh, if you're into cookies, the pioneer woman has some two or three million followers. And she has a whole line of materials. Like she, there are more people who knows that she exists uh, in some areas than, say, a, a John MacArthur or a John Piper. Preachers of the gospel. It's natural to want to be the greatest in the church, the local church, or the national church. That is the churches, of the Christians in Canada, or internationally. To be known in the church, here or further afield. To be the preacher in the pulpit. If you can get over your fear of public speaking. To have the, the so-called authority to stand here week after week. To be an elder or a steward, there, there's a desire to. If, if I was just in charge, then the church could do it this way, my way. My way is the best way. To be a speaker at this conference or that, to be an author or blogger. That's a major temptation for pastors, elders, influencers today. Um, we are now the second or maybe third generation of public Christianity. To, to be a blogger is a big thing. There's good blogs and bad blogs, but whether you have a good blog or a bad blog, the goal is to get readers, to be known. 
Who doesn't want to be the greatest? Now, now, underneath this, it's not entirely sinful. I want to be clear about that before we move on. It, underneath this is this desire for significance, to be known. To live a significant life is not a bad thing. To desire to live a significant life is a good thing. And to be known, that there's nothing inherently wrong with that. And I love, there's about an 80-year-old sermon by C.S. Lewis called The Weight of Glory. He says, you know, fame is not in and of itself wrong. It's that we've twisted it. We've corrupted it so that we want to be famous among the creatures. And what he concludes is really what, where, where that impulse is coming from is each one of us was created to want to be famous to God. That is to be known by God. That really helps. So before I go on, I don't want anyone to think that greatness in and of itself is the problem. The problem is we can't often keep a pure drive toward greatness. And even those who start out in ministry wanting to preach the word and to write books for God and for Christ's glory, it can get easily twisted into self-gratification and aggrandizement. I struggle with this. Does anyone else? So whether it's in the church or not, each one of us wants to be great. You know what's helpful is that the the disciples struggled with this many times in the gospel. They're fighting about who wants to be the greatest. Just recently, for Frontline, for our men's discipleship groups, we read through Luke and Acts, and I was shocked. I don't know, I, I must have known it was there, but I'd forgotten. I was shocked that at the Last Supper, right after Jesus, uh, Jesus declares that someone's going to betray him and that Satan enters into Judas, and they're, they're in the upper room. We're hours away from the crucifixion of Jesus, and they begin to fight over who is the greatest. A dispute arose among them, the disciples, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greatest? Or who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Just before we get to... Um, Today's text, this is a little bit pre-sermon to set us up. I want you to notice a couple of things that Jesus says and doesn't say. He does not say that it's wrong to desire to be the greatest. But he says, if you want to be great, become the least. Become the servant. Copy me. And then the second thing that he says, he says, if you want to be great, and you will be great, because I have assigned to you, as my Father assigned to me, a throne to sit on and a kingdom to reign over. And all of those disciples who, got, who Jesus declared to be great at the Last Supper, except for John, would die a martyr's death. Serving the church. So do we want to be great? Truly great. 
By the mercies of God, Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, respond to the Gospel. That's Romans 1 to 11. Those chapters. By presenting your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so we respond to the Gospel with a pure desire for greatness, significance, and fame. Seeking not to be lauded over our fellow creatures, but to be known and used significantly by God. And that's how we worship God in spirit and in truth. Today's lesson, which is a co-text really for what I said, or read out of Luke 22, is in Romans 12. Would you open your Bibles to Romans 12? And as you do, please stand. As I read this, think to yourself and remember that the context here that Paul goes to, the very first thing he says, as we are responding to the Gospel by the way we live our lives, The very first thing that he brings up is, I'm afraid that you will have too high of an opinion of yourself, talking to each one of us in context to the Roman Christians. And that you will aspire to the wrong kind of greatness. And if you're going to keep the Gospel in mind, this is how you seek greatness. Romans 12, verses 3-8. through This is the Word of God. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among of you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not uh, all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord, as we take a look at this text, I pray that you would help us to see why you inspired Paul to write it. How how it is that a proper understanding of the local church is, is the great cure and the great safeguard against the wrong kind of aspirations and selfish ambitions and that when we stay rooted in the local church that we're protected from ourselves and a corrupted view of what it means to be great help me as i preach this and help us to see ourselves in this and i pray that your spirit would minister to us i pray these things trusting in the greatness of our lord and king our great god jesus the christ amen Please be seated. 
from now until the end of the book of Romans, we're, we're launching off of Romans 12, 1 to 2. And Romans 12, 1 to 2 is that hinge between Romans 1 to 11 and Romans 12 through 16. So in Romans 1 to 11, you have all of the doctrines of the gospel. This is what it means to be human. This is what it means for God to be righteous. And this is what it means for God to save us justification, sanctification, glorification, election. We've, been, we've preached through that. Now, chapters 12 through 16 then says that we, we need to respond to that. We, that can't just be information that we know. That information, that knowledge of the gospel has to have a transforming impact on the way we live our lives. And Romans 12, 1-2, which we preached last week, says that by the mercies of God, we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices. What does it mean to present our bodies as living sacrifices? It means to see that everything we do is in response to what God has done. We love God because He first loved us. We serve Him because He first served us. We worship Him because He created and saved us. And none of us has any merit in and of ourselves that we can bring to God that is worth anything. However, we do have a response that is worth a very great deal. That, that when we contextualize our behavior as a response in worship to what Jesus has done for us, then it is good and pleasing to God. It's more than filthy rags. It's, it's worship. It's fine gold and precious jewels if we're to use Paul's language in 1 Corinthians. So we're not offering God filthy rags. We are responding to God's initiative of salvation. And when we respond by the things that we do in our bodies, then it's precious to God. Now the very first thing that Paul addresses then. If you're going to be gospel people, if you're going to respond to the gospel, it is nonsensical to have too high of an opinion of yourself. He says, if you do things thinking that you're greater than anyone else, then you haven't understood the gospel. Go back and revisit Romans 1 through 11. You haven't understood that you've been bought with a great price. You haven't understood that you were a rebellious sinner who was moving away from God, that your natural destination was hell, but He sent the Lord Jesus to save you. And so you cannot, by gospel definition, have a high opinion of yourself. But that doesn't mean that you're worthless and a depraved sinner that's no better than a worm, you're valuable to God, the Gospel also says. And we know that because He sent Himself in the person of His Son to die for you so you're valuable. This is, this is not, the Gospel is not about hating yourself. It's about having a right understanding of yourself. We are valuable and loved, but we bring no righteousness to the table. And so our greatness is a derived greatness. It's, we are great because God says we are great. We are great because we are the object of God's affection. We are great because we are loved. We are great because of the mercy with which God has saved us. And, and if, if we can keep our minds on that kind of a greatness, we will be protected from wanting to be greater than the other creatures. And our greatness will be an inviting kind of greatness. Come and be great alongside me. 
That's all very important because the very first thing that Paul says is don't seek the wrong kind of greatness. Echoes back to the gospel, which I've already touched on. This passage, Romans 12, 3 through 8, can be divided into two parts. The first part is verse 3, and this is the danger, the having the wrong opinion of yourself. And then the second part is verses 4 through 8, and that's the solution. And it's, it's uh, counterintuitive. The solution to a corrupted, perverted aspiration for greatness, it's counterintuitive that the solution is to root yourself in the local church. I would not have come to that. I would have had some other psychobabble to offer you. I say, if you want to protect yourself from the wrong kind of greatness, you need to think a certain way. That's not what God says here through Paul. He says, your best defense is to root yourself in a local church with other believers. So this passage is, is kind of strange for me because I've often gone here. There's three places in the Bible where we learn about the body of Christ. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4. And so you go there trying to learn something about the church, but you forget, or I have, I have forgotten that there's a reason that Paul appeals to the local church in each one of those places. So here, it's about the local church is the great anecdote for the wrong kind of greatness. Personal aggrandizement at the expense of others. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, the local church is the anecdote to aspiring to the, a certain kind of spiritual gift, just wanting everyone to speak in tongues. And Paul says, well, hold on a minute. If, if that's all the church is, is a bunch of people speaking in tongues, then we don't have a church. So he appeals to the local church as a body in a, for a different reason there. And in Ephesians 4, there's divisions in the church. And he says, you need unity. And he appeals to the body of Christ there to show that the body is a unity based on diversity. So different occasions for coming back to the local church. Here, or before I get to here, uh, each occasion then needs to be understood in its context. And the reason we're talking about the local church here is because we have, the, the, we're inclined to think too highly of ourselves. Or, I might add, you might say, oh, that's not me. I think very low of myself. We are either inclined to think too highly of ourselves or too low of ourselves. Very rarely do you find a person who thinks just right about himself or herself. It's either too high of an opinion of himself or herself, too low of an opinion of himself or herself, but very rarely a gospel-rooted right understanding of self. That's what the local church is to provide. There's something that if you have a high opinion or a low opinion of yourself, there's something that those two things have in common, though, is a preoccupation with self. If you think too low of yourself, it's because you're thinking about yourself too much. You don't matter that much. And it's the same problem if you have too high of an opinion of yourself. You're thinking about yourself too much, which is sort of let me just crack the door as to why then Paul goes to the local church. In the local church, the goal is not to think of yourself at all, but to think of others. That's hard. I'll say why it's hard for me. I spend so much time with myself that it's hard for me not to think of myself. And you spend just as much time with yourself as I do with myself. So we think too much of ourselves. 
for good or for bad, for high opinion or low opinion. So here's the danger, that each of us thinks too highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Let's take a look at it in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. I've already mentioned this, but I just want to underline it for you. The fact that after we transition out of doctrine to behavior, the fact the very first thing that Paul addresses is self-preoccupation. I think that's, that's purposeful. That's the great killer of Christian joy and unity and productivity. It's one of the greatest problems that each of us has to surmount and overcome. Paul begins by saying, by the grace given to me. Why does he start that way? Well, for one, he's just about to tell people to stop thinking about themselves so much. And he opens himself up to the charge that he's thinking about himself too much. That who are you to tell me not to think about myself so much? What gives you the right? Where do you derive your authority to do that, right? Because he, by writing this letter, this letter comes with apostolic authority. He's just spent 11 chapters telling us what is true and what is not true. And now he's going to tell us how to live our lives? Paul, who do you think you are? Same way that preachers every day get up. Preachers are no different than anyone else in the local church. We'll get to this in 4 through 8. We just have a different function in the body. So Paul begins by saying, look, I don't think I'm better than anyone else, but the grace, by grace, Jesus appeared to me and made me an apostle. I had nothing to do with that. I was the greatest of sinners. I was persecuting the church. I was on my way to arrest Christians. I hated the Lord Jesus Christ. By grace, he saved me. The worst of sinners to prove that if he can save me, he can save anyone. And he has put me to work for him. He has told me to write this to you, so don't take this up with me. This is God's word. By the grace given to me. Likewise, I want to piggyback on Paul and say, uh, by grace I stand here giving you this word this morning. I am nothing. I have no authority in of myself. It's the word of God. So by grace, Paul, and now me, say to everyone among you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. How do you know if you're thinking too highly of yourself? This is very difficult. I think... If you are competitive, if you are upset when someone else's star is rising, if you wish that you could be the one doing that thing, if you begrudge someone else's popularity, productivity, contribution, that you're thinking too highly of yourself. Now, there is a right, there, this is what makes this tricky because it's not bad to aspire to significance. Those who desire to the office of overseer desire a noble task. 
Those who desire to make a good contribution in a local church, that's a good thing. It's biblical. We're going to get to that in 4 through 8. But when you begrudge someone else because you feel that they're in your spot, you want to, you want to best them. You want to be better than them. You, you are jealous of them. You are envious of them. If you are constantly checking your social media page to see how many people have responded to what you just posted, or your blog. If, you know, we do, do have, um, I think we can tell how many people visit our website and we check in from time to time. But if I'm checking that daily or even weekly, I, I've got a problem. If I want to see how many people have listened to the sermons online, then I've got a problem. Because it's not really, if I'm being honest, and I have fallen into that, it's not about being glad that the word of God has gone out, but it's being glad that someone's heard my voice. Shame on me. So we have to be very, very careful. And you have to ask the Holy Spirit to help you. Are you competing for greatness? We need to find our place according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. What does that mean? Think with you about yourself with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Well, I think Paul's trying to balance this. Think about yourself with sober judgment. If that was a full stop, then what might happen is we might think that what Paul is exhorting us to do is to think badly of ourselves. I have nothing to contribute. Woe is me! I am no one. I am nothing. I will never be a somebody. I, I have no gifts. I have no skills. I have no place. I have nothing to give you. I have nothing to do. Sober judgment, right? And we could almost hold that up as a false piety, a, a, a form of spirituality which it actually is not. That's that low opinion of self that is not biblical. He says, think about yourself with sober judgment. But, but then he says, each according to the measure of faith that God has given you. And what is he trying to say there? He's saying, don't think high, don't think low, think accurate. And according to the measure of faith means this. God has given you grace. He has given you faith to appropriate that grace. He has given you a job to do. And so figure out what is your role? What is your function? Don't think too high. Don't think too low. But think about what is the contribution that by faith you can make. And your contribution will be an act of faith. You're not going to be depending too much on your ability, nor will you worry too much if you don't have the ability. You're going to step out in faith to do something significant. And each one of us is given a different measure of faith. So for some people, it's just coming to church. Like For some people, just to get there, that, to exercise that ministry of presence, to, to, to get out of the house, to get into the car, to turn the car on, to drive here, to get out and... and to interact with people. That's the measure of faith that God has given some. And if that's you, if, if that's your contribution is showing up, I want you to know that there are, there's nothing more important than showing up. It's an undervalued part of the life of the body. 
the ministry of presence, to just be that consistent person that is here. And especially good for you if you struggle with social anxiety and it's hard to get here and to stay here, to stay after. Maybe this is okay, but after. That's one level, but on the other level, Someone like a John Piper, the measure of faith, he is afraid to speak publicly, but the measure of faith that God gave him was a burning in his bones to preach the word. And God has given him a platform, and so he stands on that platform with great humility, and he preaches to hundreds and thousands. I would say millions have heard his sermons and read his books. Each according to the measure of faith. The danger, though, is that we would mistake grace for merit with regard to our role and function in the church. Each one of us need to discover what our role and function is in the church, and then we have to always remember that whatever we're doing, we are doing it to respond to the grace of God at work in our life. We're not doing it to earn God's favor. We're not doing it to be meritorious. That is, we're not trying to earn God's favor. We already have it. And therefore, it's by grace that we do these things and for grace's sake. So if that's the danger, the great danger is a paralysis on the one hand or an overachievement on the other because of a warped sense of self. What's the solution? I've already hinted at it. I've already actually told you. The solution is to contextualize your role or function individually, personally, within the whole church. Just as one member of a body is contextualized within the whole body. This finger, or this thumb, is really important to me. But if you chopped it off and put it apart from me, it would be worth nothing. You could say the same thing about my eyes, my tongue, my heart, my lungs, my brain, my feet, my hands, my ears. Any part of me is, is needed for the wholeness of my person. But if you remove any part of me and you put it on its own, even my heart, which by beating keeps me alive, apart from the rest of the body, is worth nothing. It is isolated and it is alone. Therefore, no member in the body is in and of itself great. It's the body that is great. And every member in my body contributes to the greatness. Now, you may take issue with me saying that I have a great body. But but the point is that everybody is great. And the members of everybody are not individually great. But when they work together, they make something great. Let's read uh, verses 4 and 5. As in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually we are members one of another. So we take this idea of the human body, or you could take any body, you could take an animal body, any body, you could even take a car, take something out of a car, and that piece outside of the car is not worth anything. It doesn't contribute to any functional good until you put it back in to a car. 
So, so every part is important and valuable and necessary, but no part is truly great apart from the other parts. So in the, in the sense of a body, we need one, uh, every part of our physical bodies. We need every part of the car, and it is the body and the car that is great, so it is that the local church is great. The local church is great, and each one of us are a valuable contributing part of the greatness of the local church. However, no one of us, because we are merely members of the body, is great in and of himself or herself. Our greatness requires the greatness of the other members. And when we function together, we truly are great. It's a corporate greatness. And I love that God has done that. Therefore, going back to the original problem, which one of us is the greatest, said the apostles? Well, we could ask the same question here at Social, couldn't we? Which one of us is the greatest? The answer is, no one of us is the greatest. The greatest among us is the collective group. What we are together is what makes us great. And I'll go on to say that any one of us could be removed from the body without paralyzing the greatness of this body. You don't, there is no church where the pastor is indispensable, where if you remove the pastor, all of a sudden the greatness of the local church is evaporated. That's a myth. Or it's bad ecclesiology. It's a bad practice of what it means to be the church. There is no elder that if you remove that elder, the greatness of the church diminishes. There's no steward that if you remove that steward, the greatness of the church diminishes. There, there, there's no member that if you remove that member, that the greatness of the church diminishes. Now, having said that, if you chop my thumb off and put it over there, I will be wounded. So it's okay to, to recognize that there's pain in the life of the body, but the body remains great with or without my thumb. In, in case you want to say, well, a body is not great without the heart or the brains or the lungs, there are vital organs, and I would just say, let's give those to Christ. Christ is the only one among us who is vital. You remove Christ, we're nothing. We have nothing. We are dead. Just as if you remove my heart, we're dead. So Christ is the heart of the church as much as he is the head of the church. But none of us, I am not the heart and you are not the heart. Uh, I am not the brain and you are not the brain of this body. It's Christ and Christ alone. We are members of Christ's body. And so each one of us is valuable. But none of us is independently great. My greatness and yours depends on the greatness of the church itself. Paul transitions then his, uh, his metaphor and he makes it plain that he's talking about the church. Verses 6 through 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If you, if you do underline in your Bibles, just underline that. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, 
the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, I've listened to a lot of sermons on this text where each one of those becomes a major point. I'm really not going to get into that very much because I don't think that's really Paul's major point here. He's not trying to define for us the the functions, uh, individual functions of the body. He's not trying to define for us what is prophecy, what is service, what is teaching, what is exhortation, what is contribution, what is leading what is acts of mercy now i understand it's not wrong to do a sermon series where each one of those is a a sermon or for that to be a major part of the sermon but it's not going to be a major part of this sermon because contextually it's not a major part to paul's point this is a non-exhaustive list of ways in which individual members can make a contribution that let us use our gifts here's some here's some examples that's it Here's some examples. If you're a leader, lead. If you're a teacher, teach. If, you're, if you've got money, give generously. If you like to serve, if you like to clean the church, clean the church. If you like to stack tables, stack tables. If you want to make food for the church, make food for the church. If you want to help on audio and visual, help in audio and visual. If you want to help in the nursery, help in the nursery. If you want to pick someone up for church, pick somebody up for church. Do you see what I mean? Like It's not a major part to Paul's point. All he's saying is do something. And whatever you do, that doing is a contribution to the greatness of the local church. He puts puts prophecy first, then service, then teaching. I don't think that there's any order of priority here. Because then he goes on and he says exhortation, giving financially, leading, acts of mercy. What's an act of mercy? It's when you go out and you actually do something kind for someone who doesn't deserve it. These are all equally valuable. Could you imagine a church without any one of those? Like in leading is what, fifth or sixth there? If you wanted to prioritize, well, we need leaders and we need to, you know. But, but that's, not, that's, that's not Paul's point. Paul's point is every one of us is a part of the body. Each one of us needs to do something. And in our doing, we make the church great. And that's the solution to the pitfall of having too high of an opinion of yourself. You're not doing anything different than anyone else in the church if the church is a- actually operating properly. Whether you're preaching or making banana bread or mopping the floors, no one is doing something that the others aren't expected to do. And it, all of those things contribute to the corporate greatness of the local church. And so it becomes ridiculous from a gospel point of view to say who's the greatest we are the greatest when we're working well together some implications then for us does everyone have something here to do i think most of us do i i I mean there may be one or two uh, that i don't even have in my mind right now uh, that don't have a, a an actual ministry that that you're doing i I, we are a great church 
We are a wonderful, mighty, great, biblical expression of what is great in reality. We, We are doing the very thing that God has called us to do. We are great. Why are we great? Not because of any one of us, but because of us. And I just want to commend you. I want to take this opportunity to say thank you and, and to say keep it up. And may this be a church where our culture is, is one of, of participation. Not, not one where we pay someone to do the ministry, but we pay one person to study the Bible. That's me. Thank you for your paycheck. And the rest of us are equipped by the elders to do the ministry. The, that's a I don't need to re-preach that, I don't think. That's our, our biblical model. That, that is our mandate. That is what we're aspiring to. That is what we're succeeding in doing. And, and if you go to any other church and, or, or, you, or you know of any other Christian who says, well, actually, you pay your pastor to do ministry, you can correct them and say, actually, no, that's not biblical. You don't have a fleet of professional Christians who are more important, who are greater, who are more valuable, who are, who are making a greater investment in the kingdom than everyone else. You, you pay one or two Christians in every local church so that they don't have to go out and get a job so that they can study the Bible. And what a great blessing that is, I can tell you from personal experience. And then you have elders, most of them who are not paid to be elders, And their job is not to do the ministry. Their job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that the body is functioning, so that we're all making a contribution. And and so the ministry is not even done by the elders. The elders set vision, they shepherd, so they're doing a kind of ministry, but the work of the ministry, the ministries themselves are done by the great members of the church. That's the biblical vision for the church. And if you're in a church where that is happening, it is really hard to have a puffed up opinion of yourself because you look around and you say, wow, he's great and she's great and they're great and that's a great family and aren't we great? And what I'm doing is just one part of this great thing that God is doing in and through us. Praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're going to respond to the gospel then, because that's what Romans 12 through 16 is all about, both individually and corporately, if, if we are going to uh, respond to the grace that has been poured out in our lives, then each of us has to find something to do. And there's one last point that I want to give here, and it is this, that according to the grace given to us, each of us has a gift that is different, and the gift is according to the grace that is given to us. I have been given the grace to study the Bible and to teach the Bible. Not everyone in this local church has been given the same grace. That's okay. So there's no cookie-cutter Christian. But what is the grace that God has given to you? And how do you discover that? What do you love to do? What are you proficient in doing to the glory of God? 
that is by God's grace that he has given you that desire and that ability. And when your abilities and your desires are in tandem like a hand in a glove, and you then operate out of those desires, performing those abilities as your contribution to the local church, then that is how you identify the grace that God has given to you. So grace will give us different things to do, and that's the Holy Spirit who has created us and saved us and given us different ways of thinking and and living and doing things. And also, though, there's also the scope. If you're preaching to a small church like ours, there's been grace given to me to do this, or or you could be at Harvest, Barry, and Pastor Todd is preaching to a 1,000 people, or Emmanuel Barry, I think 1,300 people. God decides the scope according to his grace. And we rejoice that there are thousands of people in this city sitting under the teaching of the word of God this morning. And you could take that for Barry, Canada, uh, anywhere. So you take your gift, you're like, oh, I have this gift, but I'm doing it in a small corner. And nobody notices. Well, do it according to the grace that has been given to you And the context in which you live and serve is a part of the grace that God has given to you. And God will decide the scope of your service. Therefore, we don't need to aspire to having the most followers on Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or Twitter or whatever it is. We, We don't need to aspire to these great accolades internationally or nationally or provincially or citywide we just have to be great in the local church and the local church always comes first this text is not about be great internationally be great in the local church And until you're doing it in the local church, don't aspire to it in the workplace, in your neighborhood, or further afield. So if we're going to respond to the gospel, both individually and corporately, we have to fight the impulse to compete with one another and to compare our service against the service of others. We are not in competition with one another. We are not in competition with other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. We are not in competition with other Christians around the world. We are, uh, we are not in competition with anyone else. Who is the greatest? The greatest is Jesus Christ, and all of us are in His service according to the grace given to us. The rest of us, whether it be in this church or a church across town or a church in Toronto or a church uh, in Aurelia or a church in Vancouver or a church in Minnesota or whatever, all of us are here by grace alone and whatever we do is because of God's mercy toward us. It is not because of our individual merit. Just being called to service is a miracle. That the God of the universe against whom we were in active rebellion, has saved us and says, I want you to serve me and bring me glory. A church that is comparing and competing, whether that's comparing and competing members individually within, or a local church that is comparing and competing with other local churches, cannot worship God apart from His grace. 
When we compete with one another, when we compare ourselves to others, individually or church by church, it blocks our ability to worship God because there, then we're only worshiping ourselves. Therefore, we must serve without competition. Be glad when you see someone doing a great thing to the glory of Christ. Exalt them. Let other people exalt you. Therefore, let us strive in this church and as a church in this city, in this province, in this country. Let us strive to work together, not competing, not comparing. Let us each add our gift according to the measure of faith given to us because of God's grace to the glory of Christ alone, for he alone is great. Let's pray. Lord, I think it is significant that the very first thing that you address through Paul when it comes to living out the gospel is that we are not to seek individual greatness, but we are to seek a place within the corporate greatness of your local church. Oh God, this is so hard for us. And I pray that you would help us Help us not to have too high of an opinion of ourselves. Help us to give everything we've got to this local church. Because we, we know that Jesus is great. And because this church is his body, this church is great. And we are but members of it. Thank you for calling us into this body. Now help us to serve with joy. I pray this in the name of Christ, who is the head of the church. Amen.